1: and welcome back from your weekends. This is Colin. Hi, all of that. All the pleasantries uh, are stipulated. Here is why you must vote in those pesky off cycle gubernatorial elections where turnout is always lower than it is during the presidential cycles because you don't hear anything on, you know, Saturday Night Live or something about the gubernatorial races. But anyway, it turns out, as we are about to discuss, that governors get to decide whether you live or die. So. <laughs> You should probably try to know a little bit about them and maybe people like me should be encouraged to ask them kind of value-based questions you know those questions that are sometimes seen as a little bit too puffy in debates maybe those are the right questions so we're going to talk about that with john harris who's the uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief of politico uh, not exactly that uh, founding editor that's his actual place. founding editor and editor-in-chief of politico magazine Uh, and uh, we're going to sort of talk about these kinds of essentially philosophical choices that are being made by political leaders who may or may not be trained at all in philosophy. We're also going to talk to Carl Zimmer, one of the preeminent science writers in America, about the race for a vaccine, about the presence of nationalism in some of the races for a vaccine, and anything else that we can get Carl to talk about. Uh, He basically knows everything. And then at the end, because you didn't have enough to worry about... There are murder hornets. That's actually what they're called. There's a kind of hornet called a murder hornet that has arrived on the West Coast. and We won't get you too worried about it, but you should be a little bit worried anyway. All right, so let's get going with this. Uh, John Harris, a founding editor, editor-in-chief of Political Magazine, uh, welcome back to our show.
2: Yeah, hey, Colin. Nice to hear your voice again.
1: Well, it's nice to have you on. So... Um, You know, I find myself imagining a race of extraterrestrials watching this whole scenario from a distant starship, and they keep saying, I don't get it. They have new cases emerging all over the place, but they're sending people back out there. Why are they doing this? Uh, uh, And and that's basically what we're seeing right now. We're seeing states opening back up while they have emerging cases. In some cases, while they have new uh, statistics indicating that that cases are on the rise, they're opening back up. So so how, what do we make of this? How do we understand this?
2: Well, look, I'm not going to make a judgment because it's outside my kind of area of expertise about the public health dimension of this, is whether a state that's opening up, uh, such as Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. is doing so uh, too early or not. Um, but I, what I will say, is that every single governor, all 50 of them, is making some trade-off, some calculation, uh, some, some relative judgment uh, about values that are in tension with uh, one another. Uh, public health is one. Uh, the desire of people to get back on with their lives uh, and all the benefits that come with that is, is the other. Uh, and it's a difficult moment for our politics because we're used to discussing issues in absolutes and in highly moralistic terms. Um, when, in fact, uh, an issue like this doesn't really lend itself to absolutes. But uh, you're, everybody is making judgments about what level of risk we consider acceptable and how much value we assign to uh, to different uh, priorities that that are indeed in tension with one another.
1: So let's hear how this sounds. Uh, Here's the governor of Colorado responding to a question uh, from Jake Tapper on CNN's State of the Union uh, on April 26th. A question about whether he is uh, worried that reopening business too soon could cost human lives. Here he is.
3: Well, we always wish, Jake, that I had next week's information and next month's, month's information available to me today. That's not the world we live in. We have to make the best informed decisions based on data and science with the information we have what we know is that what matters a lot more than the date that the stay-at-home ends is what we do going forward and how we how we have an ongoing sustainable way psychologically economically and from a health perspective to have the social distancing we need at workplace where people recreate and across the board
1: so john as you point out Moral relativism uh, is sometimes uh, flung around as kind of uh, an epithet or at least a a degraded form of thinking, Uh, and and certainly it comes up when people on the right are criticizing abortion choice and stuff like that, and they, they really cry out for some sense of absolute morality. But first of all, this seems like a situation that defies absolute morality. I don't think we're gonna get away from moral relativism no matter what decision a governor makes, but maybe you'd like to comment.
2: Well, um, you know, there's always an element of uh, distortion and and, uh, um, pretense. I would say, whenever we discuss an important policy issue in absolutes. uh, um, uh, You know, you you mentioned abortion, and uh, that's the one that seems to really lend itself to absolutes. But then even there, people would say, well, not in cases of of, uh, rape or incest. Uh, So even there, it's a qualified judgment we don't live our lives uh, really in absolute uh, move it away from a, a a kind of emotionally charged issue like uh uh like abortion rights uh, and uh uh to a more simple one uh, uh whether to fly to california on vacation uh, as soon as the airlines start flying again you don't typically think of that as making a, a value-based judgment but you actually are you know that uh there's some degree of risk uh Associated with hopping on the plane uh, versus staying at home, you'll say, "Well, I'll accept that amount of risk because uh, uh, I want to go to uh, Yosemite." Uh, you know, we do that all the time. Uh, ordinarily, unlike in a in this pandemic, we're not confronted in such a visceral way with the with the trade-off. Of course, if you were Governor Polis in, in uh, Colorado, if your absolute goal was protecting every single life, you'd say, "No way, am I opening up? Uh, w- maybe not till uh, a year from now." If you were interested in saving every single uh, life, but you say, "Well, look, we've got to make judgments, uh, and uh, this is where I'm placing the judgment about the trade-off between uh, health," and he mentioned other things, psychological factors, economic factors. So, yes, we're all moral relativists,
1: right? And and even for Polis, yeah, he he knows there is no way that he can prevent all deaths. I mean, even as the the sketch that, the way that you sketch it out, the way you lay it out, I mean, if he keeps the controls on, there are going to be other things. There may be going to be a higher rate of suicide. There may be domestic violence that leads to a murder. There may be ways in which uh, people who are very poor and can't get access to resources uh, get sicker uh, than they otherwise would and die or, you know, have all kinds of other social ills that contribute to their early demise. It's why there isn't like a 100% safe way. On the other hand, I sense that what you're maybe calling out for a little bit is, could could we be less murky about the whole thing? In other words, you know, uh, there's no way to run an algorithm that'll tell you exactly which choice will result in which outcomes, but you could probably come a little closer than what we heard from Polis.
2: Well, what I really wish for in our politics is more honesty. Uh, And I for that, uh, just by the way, I, I didn't find uh, Governor Polis to be especially dishonest. Uh, he was a little bit roundabout and circuitous
3: in answering
2: that question, but he was fundamentally fundamentally acknowledging a tension between different values. And uh, often uh, in our political discussion, we don't do that. One side is uh, is good, the other is evil. One's choice is smart, the other is, uh, is greedy or stupid or short-sighted. That's not really life. And the reason to, to tackle this stuff is not just to have a, a kind of a searching philosophical discussion as we're having right now. The reason I think the pandemic is an important moment in our politics is that most of the big issues uh, for the next generation, Colin, I think uh, are some version of this uh, climate change and how to tackle that is a public policy that starkly puts different values in tension with one another. They're not necessarily mortally antagonistic. They can be balanced, but you have to acknowledge that there's a balance between uh, um, people's right to do what they want, which is uh, ordinarily an attractive goal, versus uh, saving the uh, the planet from uh, warming, which is obviously a moral imperative of its own. How do you balance those? Uh, uh, Regulating technology, perfect example. Uh, Most of the big threats uh, to our values computers uh being used for surveillance and manipulation uh you know, they they have the opportunity to do that because uh, uh we like having the stuff in our lives the uh, uh, the technology uh we like uh, we give permission to companies uh, to uh, uh to know our location uh, so it's these are uh, these are values that are in tension with one with each other and i think uh, constructive politics uh, would acknowledge that and have a debate about where to put the balance.
1: So, uh, you know, again, this all winds up, not to, not to keep like casting it back into the realm of philosophy, but ultimately you have to have a presiding definition of public interest, right? So let's take climate change. Let's get away from COVID for a second. So uh, you and I probably are pretty close on the issue of climate change and that obviously the public interest uh, in, in in halting it or, or slowing it down as much as possible uh, to limit the damage, uh, limit the damage to the food supply, limit the all the myriad ills you know that that pile up uh, in a way that's starting to look very familiar right now uh, climate change needs to be stopped but there's the competing argument will also invoke public interest right they'll say the the public interest in keeping our economies going with minimal amounts of disruption as we transition a little bit toward more towards more sustainable uh, forms of, of energy uh, and, uh, and more sustainable forms of, of growth um, you know th- that's how you honor the public interest you don't honor it by disrupting everything that we do based on one uh, set of scientific observations so I'm I guess I'm wondering John maybe we don't part of the problem is we don't agree what the public interest is
2: well the public interest is never perfectly defined and it's it's never resolved in a kind of a a Cambridge uh, or Oxford style debate Um, um, it's always going to be a messy Uh, more chaotic, um, more unruly, and sometimes uh, more distorted and even dishonest debate than we might wish in pure form. What I would say is that we can do a lot better than we do in acknowledging uh, conflicting values and and that most of the difficult public policy issues facing us in the next generation are not black and white. You know, there are some issues that are uh, do lend themselves to that more than others. And I think that's kind of how we got in the habit uh, nationally of, of discussing things in such a, uh, binary terms. Um, you know, there's not really a, um, uh, a, 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 a value, legitimate value to being racist, right? I think everybody said, well, that's a, that's a black and white issue. Uh, the, the, the good thing is to not be that. And the people who practice that are bad. Uh, so there's a, a, an issue that lends itself to, to rigid moralism, but a lot of issues do not. And and I think the most important issues facing us over the next generation do not lend themselves to that. They lend themselves to competing uh, priorities, competing, competing values, defining the public interest uh, uh, through honest debate. Uh, and so in that sense, the pandemic is uh, maybe a useful opportunity to develop some muscles that in our political culture have gotten very weak.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I hate to be the pessimist, although I seem to be that more these days. My concern is that the other side of this argument will use this current scenario to marshal its own case. They'll say, look, we know what happens when you slow down the economy because you want to do something about some other problem. We just watched that happen. We went into, and then you just plug in a depression or a huge recession or whatever this thing turns out to be when it's all over. Uh, they're going to say, we know what happened. We drove our economy off a cliff. Why would we want to do that again? Um, you know, I'm just wondering which lesson, John, people are going to take away. I think they'll take away the lesson that they like better.
2: Yeah, I suppose so in in many days. uh, I'm as uh, pessimistic as you are. I wrote a column uh, a couple weeks ago uh, saying, uh, stop looking on the bright side. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be screwed by the pandemic for years to come. And I think that's a possibility. Um, uh, In a more optimistic mood, uh, the most recent column I wrote, and I guess uh, our conversation with you now is, uh, I think that uh, uh, we do tend to uh, muddle our way through uh, in a in a messy and improvisational way, uh, but the public interest does get defined. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, I'm, so at least for today, I'm going to be optimistic.
1: Yeah, well, the good narrative is scientists told you about something that could happen for years and years and years, and everybody ignored it, and look at the mess we're in, uh, and you could just plug climate change <laughs> into that same thing. But I, I'm just wondering. I, I hope you're right, John. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, John uh, Harris, founding editor uh, uh, and uh, editor-in-chief of Politico magazine. Thanks for being with
2: us. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope to talk to you soon.
1: All right. So we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to Carl Zimmer, who knows— Everything really about science that may be building them up a little bit too much. On the other hand, it may be just a very fair statement. Uh, One of America's preeminent science writers, he's going to talk about the race for a vaccine, uh, which The New York Times covered comprehensively. today. Carl Zimmer is the author of 13 books about science. His newest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Power of Perversions and Potential of Heredity. His column, Matter, appears each week in the New York Times, uh, and he's an adjunct professor at Yale. Uh, he was one of the uh, writers who worked on this weekend's New York Times piece. But what's, what's at stake in the rush to uh, find a vaccine against the coronavirus that causes COVID-19? Uh, Carl, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with today's news, and then we can probably work backwards from there to all the stuff that you guys reported on. So today in Brussels, there's this weird kind of, you know, like telethon or something taking place where world leaders are pledging uh, money uh, to raise at least $8 billion for research into a possible vaccine and treatments for the coronavirus, with the goal also of somehow or other taking it out of nationalist uh, interests uh, and, and creating something for the world as opposed to an originating country. Uh, absent would be one key country, unless you count Melinda Gates. Uh, the United States is, as I understand it, not there uh, as part of this. So tell us about this, Carl.
3: Right. So this is a, a, a uh, gathering of the uh, organized by the European Union, but there are a number of other countries like Canada that are also involved. And um, they're basically uh, um, trying to uh, drum up interest in, I don't know, a vaccine that could save the world. How about that? Mm. And so what they're doing is um, the governments are pledging uh, money towards th- this goal. And they're also agreeing to... Um, a number of sort of uh, sharing uh, protocols, I guess you could say, um, where um, they're going to be sharing uh, research and also be working together to uh, distribute a vaccine should, should there one uh, be discovered. Um, and so, yeah, the United States is not uh, at this meeting, uh, neither is China. And that tells you a lot about kind of where we are in 2020 Uh, dealing with a vaccine for a disease that's uh, basically threatening the entire world.
1: Right. So the bad news is that all these different countries uh, are are certainly these two big players that you mentioned, uh, and lots and lots and lots of projects are kind of all over the place. But that's also the good news, right? And just in the sense that to put too much effort into one particular project uh, probably doesn't give us the scientific diversity that we would hope for uh, just to create a larger prospect of stumbling over the right answer.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, what people have to remember is like, um, by some estimates, only about 6% of vaccine projects make it from sort of the initial uh, design of the vaccine and experiments with animals to actually getting into people. So a lot of them fail. They just don't, they don't work out. And so uh, if you if you were to put all your hopes on one vaccine uh, and say, well, this is it. Uh, what if it's, one of the ones that doesn't work. So um, so there are, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly how many vaccine projects there are. Honestly, <laughs> there are so many. There are definitely over 90. I've seen some estimates. There are over 100. Um, and they take very different approaches. And that's good. Uh, experts say, you know, essentially, like, that's more shots on goal, There's more chance that you're going to have at least one that succeeds. And maybe you'll have a few that succeed. And that would be actually even better.
1: Right. But there's also this question of scalability. And one of the things pointed out in the work that you guys did is, you know, it's not even just having a vaccine. It's having X billion appropriate pieces of medical glass. I mean, you can't, you know, just ladle this stuff out of vats into syringes. It's all going to have to be manufactured and packaged a certain way. And that's a problem.
3: Yeah. I mean, you have to bear in mind that this is the biggest vaccine undertaking ever. Um, and that's saying a lot. I mean, vaccines have, have really transformed uh, our health. Uh, and, you know, the, there are these amazing stories, for example, of smallpox. We eradicated smallpox from the earth uh, and we did it with vaccines and it was a really huge, uh, long process, uh, at, but it was a success. Um, and, and, but here what we're trying to do is we are trying to get, vaccines, as you say, to ideally seven billion people. Uh, and uh, they're, we're trying to do it in record time. Um, the record by far for a vaccine was four years. That was the mumps vaccine in the 60s. Typically, it can take 10 to 15 years for a vaccine uh, to, to work. And we have a number of diseases that people have been trying for decades. Like we don't have an HIV vaccine yet. Uh, And so uh, to say, oh, we're going to get this done in a year, year and a half, that's bold.
1: On the other hand, I mean, we get presumably as a species better and better at coming up w- with these um, uh, these kinds of solutions. And, you know, one thing that I didn't quite understand until I, I read the piece that you guys did, and I'm not even sure I 100% <laughs> understand all of it now, is that so I grew up with the idea of a vaccine being sort of a weak version uh, of the pathogen, you know, a weakened pathogen that essentially teaches my immune system uh, or warns my immune system so it ramps up uh, and that's not like one, what
3: 100 percent of vaccine projects are at this point. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of the classic approach. <clears throat> so, you know, um, the the rabies vaccine was one of the first vaccines ever made. And that is that that was a a weakened virus. And, and there are uh, and a lot of the vaccines that, that we get these days are, are weakened or inactivated viruses, the viruses itself. And it's in your immune, in your body and your immune system can get to know it without you getting sick because it can't replicate. Um, but scientists have been moving beyond that. So for example, they've said like, well, let's just take a little fragment of the virus, a little protein, uh, chunk and just use that instead. Uh, and the most, uh, you know, the, there are lots of, uh, uh, new kinds of vaccine designs. Like, let's just, let's just stick some DNA into your body and your cells will read the DNA and make that little virus protein uh, on its own, on their own. And then, uh, so basically you are sort of making your own body the, the factory to generate the the chemicals that your immune system is going to use to learn. Uh, And so, yeah, so there's a wide, wide range of these uh, new approaches, and um, they're all being uh, tested right now.
1: And there's also a, a little bit of variety of possible protocols for testing. So, you know, on one version, you move through ferrets and, and macaques and stuff like that. But there are this there is this protocol uh, called a challenge trial. Ex- explain that.
3: Right. So um, once a vex- so vaccines um, are are the most rigorously tested <clears throat> form of medicine of all. Uh, and the reason is that uh, vaccines are intended to be given to many, many millions of people, billions of people, the vast majority of whom are healthy. So you're not you're not like giving a drug to someone who's sick in order to cure them. You're get, you're treating healthy people. So to make healthy people sick would be really bad. So vaccines go through lots and lots of safety testing, um, first in animals and then in people, and. <clears throat> The way, and then you actually see whether it works by just basically giving people vac- the vaccine and then just let them go about their lives and then see who gets sick and who doesn't and compare that to people who just get a placebo. Uh, and that takes a long time. So w- there's an alternative, a challenge trial that um, some pe- some experts are, are advocating for. And um, the idea is this, that you take a much smaller group of people um, you vaccinate them all, and then you give them the virus. You just, you stick the virus right in them, you 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 try to make them sick, and then you see if it works. Um, and uh, that can save you a whole lot of time, um, but the flip side is you are giving people this coronavirus and there's no standard, there's no good, really good cure for it. Um, there's a drug remdesivir, which, you know, it helps. But um, still, people are really concerned like, you know, it's not really, it's not right to to, to be doing that to people when you don't really have a good uh, treatment uh, as backup. So, um, But still, you know, there are thousands of people who have actually been volunteering, saying like, hey, I'd be happy to do this. So um, this potentially could be part of how we speed things up.
1: Although, I mean, one of the concerns that I would have, I mean, one of the reasons I won't be one of the... <laughs> <laughs> volunteers <laughs> has to go has to do with something that you've brought up uh, quite some time ago which is this is a really weird virus uh, you know from from the standpoint of virology this is a weird virus it it doesn't map all that well onto even the behavior of other coronaviruses there's still stuff that the facilities are still trying to figure out, you know, there's this whole problem, this kind of uh, hypercoagulation problem that can happen, doesn't always happen. Uh, There's these huge kinds of inflammation responses, some of which seem to happen when the virus is kind of on the way out, isn't really as present in the body. The body is still left with all these gigantic issues, some of which hospitals are getting smarter and smarter at treating and screening for pulmonary embolisms all the time and trying trying to figure out if there's going to be thrombosis in the leg, is that where the leg just went numb? You know, this is a strange critter. And and so even knowing how to take care of those human challenge volunteers in an appropriate way is maybe something it's maybe a
3: place we're not kind of at right now, but respond to that. So, um, you know, I, I, it, the, it's striking that all, all of these things that people are discovering about the coronavirus and, um, Really, uh, what it, what it means is that we are encountering a new disease for the first time um, and having to deal with it really fast. And so doctors um, may be sort of approaching it um, with certain paradigms in mind. You know, they you know people kind of initially sort of kind of likened it to the flu or to pneumonia, uh, and uh, this is different. It's definitely different. I mean, it, and you know, uh, it it uh, it can. Go after the kidneys, for example, uh, which, you know, when you get the flu, like di- you don't really think, oh, maybe I'll have to go on dialysis. Mm. Unfortunately, that's an issue with this. So, um, so you know, if anyone's going to do a challenge trial, they have to really come up with a really detailed informed consent. Um, and partly that informed consent is going to depend on all the observations that doctors are making right now to say to people like, Okay, well, if you do this, you know, here are the chances you just won't feel anything at all. Here are the chances that you'll feel something uh, kind of like a bad cold. Here are the chances that, like, you know, you, you, you might have a stroke. You know, strokes are a problem of uh, in a few cases. Um, so, yeah it's going to, uh, I don't think that people should volunteer for this lightly. Now, that being said, like, you know, certainly it would make sense. uh, Some have argued to have younger people do this uh, in their twenties because they're, you know, the fatality rate is much lower for them. Um, But on the other hand, like it doesn't, it's not as if people in their twenties are immune to, uh, we've, we've seen these heartbreaking stories of people, you know, relatively young people just suddenly having strokes. Um, So, You know, this should not be something to enter into lightly.
1: It seems as though the process of maybe identifying that kind of person runs on a parallel track to a process that we're all going to have to be part of at a certain point, which is ultimately, it seems to me that there's going to have to be some kind of risk factor algorithm, a thing that feeds as many of our variables into it as possible and may change from day to day and just looks at the the probability of certain things happening to us and 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 I'll give you an example I mean you know so much more about this but you mentioned remdesivir well, so remdesivir is kind of complicated too because it seems to work way earlier in the process but it's not something your doctor can phone in a script for or something this is an intravenously administered drug most people don't show up to places where they could get intravenous drugs early in their symptomatic process with COVID 19 because they're told well stay home until it gets really bad so, so. So remdesivir, at least initially, if it works, it it might work a little bit more like Tamiflu, where that really early window uh, where you get the antiviral would be helpful. But you're not likely to get it early in the process for all the reasons that I just uh, laid out, unless you had some kind of understanding that you were higher risk for some reason, that maybe you ought to be, you ought to rush to the front of the line for the remdesivir because you're going to get a worse COVID than the average person. I don't think we have that tool yet, but you know, Understand what I'm saying. i I don't know if I'm making any sense. See, sure. it, it seems sure, yeah. likely I that mean, we need
3: that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No. And 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 I and that is that kind of um, uh, understanding is coming together. And you know, people. <clears throat> I do think that within a few months, you know, patients will um, uh, be. First of all, they'll be test. They'll, they'll be testing, uh, at, so that you people will find out sooner whether they're actually sick or not. And then um, it may be possible to um, do a profile of people and say like, okay, we've taken a look and um, you know you're, you know the, this virus is replicating very fast, you've got a heavy dose. you know, we're, we're very concerned we need to start you on some sort of antiviral right away. Um, it, it may also be that um, along the way, uh, scientists will be keeping track of the immune system because actually like one of the most dangerous things it seems is that, um, uh, our immune system after a while just starts to, to misfire, and instead of controlling the virus, just goes berserk and attacks ourselves. And there may be um, some certain drugs, which are now in clinical trials right now, um, which could just sort of tame that down. So you might get a cocktail of something like remdesivir or some other drug uh, to, to keep the virus in check, something to keep the immune system in check, and it could all be adjusted based on your profile. Um, that could happen. Um, it's, but it's not happening right now. We're not there yet.
1: Right, and its the probability is that remdesivir. It's a first generation antiviral. It's going to be the second or third generation antiviral that really works uh, a little bit more effectively, as you say, probably in a cocktail with something that yeah helps uh, push away that cytokine storm but also possibly in a cocktail that includes some kind of monoclonal antibodies, right? I mean, that's one of the other frontiers is to uh, ultimately uh, try to get a a way of synthesizing something like the antibodies that would be in your system. I mean, we're now, we should emphasize for the listeners, we're now talking about treatments. I'm going to kind of circle back to vaccines at the end of my conversation with you, Carl, but but in that shorter window of treatment, there it's probably going to be maybe a few things layered on top of one another.
3: Well, yeah, that's what scientists I've talked to uh, have been uh, talking about. And this, you know, this will all be moving much faster than vaccines. I mean, so vaccines are are going as fast as the vaccine project can go, but that's going to take longer. But, um, you know, when people are sick right now, you can you can say like, okay, like, let's see if if, let's see if this drug can help. And uh, and scientists actually uh, are screening thousands and thousands of drugs that are already approved by the FDA to see if any of them you know, also happen to work against uh COVID-19. And lo and behold, um they ha- I've written about this in the Times this week a f- a few dozen of them do. They do and they do really well. And it doesn't matter that they are you like thorazine, which is used for schizophrenia or or certain allergy drugs and so on. At least in experiments on cells, infected cells, they they do really well better than remdesivir, much better. And so now now scientists are saying, okay, like, boom, let's let's start these animal tests, let's try it out, and then maybe we can go with some of the really good ones to clinical trials soon. I mean, like, you know, maybe this month or next month. I mean, like, things are moving fast.
1: Right. So it's possible that, you know, by September or October we might— have a more, it's probable that we would have a a more effective cocktail treatment cocktail that might help ward off some of these extreme situations where the patient just decompensates and and gets, you know, really incredibly sick uh, uh, very quickly. But meanwhile you know, the resumption of life, just to go back to the conversation with John Harris that preceded this, is probably dependent on a vaccine. And we know when a vaccine will be ready because President Trump said it will be ready by the end of the year. So, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, I guess. Uh, But realistically, Carl, there's no way to know, particularly with 100, 100 or so different projects going and different protocols and different methodologies and stuff, but I mean, what's a realistic
3: way of talking about the vaccine timeline? Um, well, r- what, what is happening is that um, that scientists are, 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 they've already made a bunch of vaccines um, and that there are already, actually or, already are the first sort of, human safety trials have already begun uh and on top of that um some of these vaccines are already being starting to be manufactured on in the hope that they will turn out to pass all these tests so things are rolling along really fast now um and some of these corporations i mean you know you talk about what president trump is saying but like some of these uh uh, corporations like astrazeneca and johnson johnson have made some some pretty bold uh um declarations you know saying by the Maybe by the beginning of next year, for example, they would have the first batches of vaccines that could be used like uh, in, in an emergency use. Uh, and so um, that, that wouldn't be for everybody. But that might mean you know, first responders might start getting vaccinated. Um, that would be great. But that all assumes that all the stars align and something does work out and it's all, all good. Um, you know, it will take it will take longer for for things to be mass produced and be to, to be distributed and so on. So, um, you know, maybe sometime in, maybe sometime in twenty twenty one, maybe.
1: Maybe. So AstraZeneca, just since you used that example, a a British corporation, I think they're working uh, in conjunction with that Oxford group. uh, That sort of sounds like a British vaccine where everybody in uh, the United Kingdom or or, or however they decide to define it gets it first and then we can talk about the rest of us. But first of all, is that the way it's likely to work in in a lot of these scenarios? I mean, I know Macron and all those people who are part of this Brussels thing today are saying, no, 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 that's not a good way to do it but isn't it kind of likely that 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 is
3: kind of how they might do it um i don't think we i don't think you can really uh predict that i mean as you say like you know a number of countries have made this pledge that they're that they're going to uh work together for you know an equitable distribution of the vaccine um they have said that uh and i don't know like i I just have to say, like, you know, if some country says, like, ha, we have the vaccine and we're going to vaccinate all our people first, like, that's not going to generate a lot of global goodwill, you know? I mean, this is this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And any country that just says, like, well, we don't really care about the rest of the world, uh, we matter most of all, I think is going to lose a lot of uh, goodwill going forward. So, So we'll see. We'll see. And, um, uh, you know, there are mechanisms in place, uh, organizations, organizations like Gavi, for example, for getting this vaccine out to lots of places. And, um, you know, there are lots of places where they're not going to be able to have uh, lots of expensive ventilators and, and expensive drugs. You know, C- developing countries um, are going to need the vaccine most of all because these other solutions aren't going to work really very well for keeping the disease in check. So I certainly hope that um, we try to think of ourselves as a as a species rather than one nation overall.
1: Well, I, I hope that you are right. Uh, what they should all do is watch Contagion. You know, in Contagion, yeah. they have the the this like the lottery. You get uh, the ping pong balls, and the birthday comes up, and everybody with that birthday gets it. It seems extraordinarily fair, uh, although uh, left very much also to chance. Uh, Carl Zimmer, so I know you're a busy guy these days. So thank you so much for taking a bunch of time to talk to us about this. Well, thank you so much for having me. Carl Zimmer from The New York Times. uh, And you should read their coverage of the vaccine project. It it dropped over the weekend. So you don't have enough to worry about, do you? So we're going to give you something else to be worried about. And it's especially worried if you happen to be listening to this and you are a honeybee. um, It's not going to be good news. (laughs) We are back. It is time to say some quick thank yous. Those thank yous go to Cat Pastor, who is there in the studio, uh, making this whole thing happen uh, and making it possible for me and for Betsy Kaplan, the producer of this episode, to work from our homes. Thanks also to Gina and We, are, I should say that... Our technical staff there's like stuff that happens all the time just glitches that come up uh, problems that come up that we just couldn't possibly anticipate there's no playbook for doing what we're doing right now like so many uh, so many other parts of the the media every day we put out a little fire and when I say we I mean they do. So I, we were having problems with the thing that connects me to the radio studio and Gene figured out uh, a way to fix that. So thanks. 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 I can't thank you guys enough. So um, and I think Betsy you do. OK, that's everybody, basically. And then um, I also want to tell you that tomorrow we're going to re-air uh, a show that we did that. I really love this show. And we are uh, using a few uh, shows from our vault these days just because I think, first of all, you guys need a break from all the COVID stuff, uh, maybe something a little uplifting. uh, And also we just need time to sort of step back and plan stuff. And so we do that. Uh, And uh, tomorrow's show uh, is about Joni Mitchell. But what we did was we had people come in with one song, various people that we knew uh, who loved music or who were kind of interesting fans of Joni Mitchell. Uh, each Each of them came and had a conversation with me about one song, so all these different songs. And they wind up kind of telling the stories of their lives a little bit, too, or either that or revealing who they are. So it's, a, it's, it's not your typical Joni Mitchell show. Joni Mitchell does not appear on the show. Okay. So enough. Uh, yes, you needed one more thing to be worried about. Uh, so there's actually something called the murder hornet or murder hornets. Uh, uh, And uh, they have uh, come to the Pacific Northwest, which also seems like it's had more than its fair share of troubles lately. Uh, Here to tell us more about it is Mike Baker, uh, the Seattle Bureau chief for the New York Times. It's New York Times Day uh, here on the show, as it often is. Uh, So, Mike Baker, welcome to our show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So, uh, yeah, this was sort of not great news for uh, anybody Ah, uh, to read about this weekend, uh, this uh, Asian giant hornet. Uh, but it's especially bad news if you're a honeybee. But let, let's just start with the hornet itself. What the hell is this thing?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really big hornet. It's, it's, <laughs> that's the that's the thing that stands out the most. It's you know, it's it's found primarily in Asia. It comes from Asia, um, but really surfaced here in the northwest and in and in lower British Columbia in the past uh, six months or so. And so there's, there's, it's a, you know, not really much clarity about how it got introduced here, but uh, as with typical global trade, it's not a, not a huge surprise, but now there's a really uh, an extensive effort to make sure it doesn't establish itself and essentially become a a permanent invasive species here.
1: Right. And so why is it called a murder hornet? Explain that
0: you know it's it's a funny story so when i was reporting this story out i one of the one of the nicknames i heard along the way that it was called the yak killer hornet and i uh we were trying to figure out at the time like what you know did it kill a yak somewhere along the way like what's the origin story on this nickname and when i talked to this researcher and in japan he goes oh we don't call it the yak killer at all i just call it the murder hornet and so that was was sort of the first place i had i had heard that nickname come up um but it's you know along with being um uh having being large with a large stinger and potent venom it can kill people in 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 group attacks you know it kills a, a few dozen people a year in japan but it can you know also as a major predator of of the honeybee it's, a, it's it can kill thousands of them in 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 just a few hours it, that's just how power, how powerful they
1: are Right. Uh, and so we should say a little bit more about this because obviously honeybees, what with colony collapse disorder, honeybees have also had more than their fair share of trouble already. And uh, I think it was Einstein who said that, the, you know, if you want to find out what's going to happen to everything, just watch honeybees. They're, they're, they're that important uh, to, their, to the whole ecosystem of food production and human life and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, So obviously the people who have the greatest interest in stopping the spread of murder hornets in the United States would be beekeepers. But what can they do about this thing? I mean, I realize that the queen could be two inches long and that's, you know, in a lineup, you're going to be able to pick the murder hornet out from other hornets really easily. But like, how do you stop a hornet?
0: I mean, it's a, it's a tough situation because, you know, they're not sure how long they've been here. We've only had two confirmed sightings and they came right, really right in the, Uh, end of fall last year and right when we're heading into winter and you're expecting, you know, basically the queens to overwinter before and now now is the season where they're actually going to start emerging again and a chance to to track them down. So there's a few different strategies right now. One is huge surveillance, you know, making people aware of this thing. You know, call and report if you see something like it. Send in a picture. Well, you know, even if you're not sure, you know, send something in. We can tell you yes or no and, and at least have sort of a bunch of eyes around. And then the other is is setting up traps all over that part of Washington State to find out, you know, if, if they can catch one. Certainly if they can catch a queen, that would be ideal to prevent a, a you know, new nest from, um, uh, from emerging. Uh, and then later this summer, it's going to be a little bit more you know, hundreds more traps out there that they can monitor to see. All right, well, if there's one in a trap here, we must be close to a, a nest. Let's 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 advance and try and track them even further. Um, you know what? One of the incredible <laughs> details on that was. There's a variety of strategies they're looking at. One is thermal imaging because the the nests in the ground can are supposed to be about 86 degrees um, because of all the activity inside. So they they might be able to figure out where they are based off of that kind of act, that kind of work. And then the other was if they can catch one in a in a trap maybe they can attach a string or a streamer or an RFID tag to it and follow it that way back to where you know where it's resting and it just just, just pretty remarkable to think that that the the hornet's big enough to be able to handle a string attached to it and still fly on back to uh, to to where it came from
1: Right. And so, and, and that's important. It's important to understand that like a, a lot of this, these kinds of insects, they do sort of work as a team. And you have these worker hornets who, they're the ones who go out and maybe they figure out oh, where the bees are. Uh, and then the next thing you know, you got a massacre on your hands. But these hornets also, I mean, if you found the nest, if you wanted to eradicate the nest, if you wanted to do something, uh, you would have to approach with caution, right? I mean, a beekeeper in Vancouver uh, approached them in his sort of full bee sting proof beekeeper suit, and that wasn't necessarily what he needed, right?
0: Yeah, he, I mean, so they, their strategy—they they had this one on on Vancouver Island that they that was basically the only nest that has actually been found, and they went out and and at nighttime, you know, all the all the hornets are back in in the nest there you know the goal was basically to, to eradicate it collect some samples so we can you know figure out more about this this specific branch of the hornet uh and and yeah it, uh, he he describes how you know, the rustling of the bushes and his flashlight that he's got on his head um you know must have awakened the nest in some way and so they came out which is you know it's not like but not like an uh, a huge thing for a guy who's used to having his, you know, wandering out with his beekeeping suit on. He's got thick sweatpants on underneath the beekeeping suit, shorts underneath his sweatpants, and and even then, as he's getting ready to, to ready to douse the nest with carbon dioxide, he gets he starts feeling the stings in his legs and. I mean, he, he, not to get uh, not, not to get too grotesque for for your audience, but I mean, he's describing it as as feeling like red hot thumbtacks just driving into his flesh, and they're they're drawn, later on. He sees they they've drawn blood. I mean, I mean, he and he's a guy who's been he's been stung thousands of times in his life and in his work, and he says these were the most painful that he's ever experienced.
1: Right. I mean, the well, exactly. I mean. You know, if you keep bees, you're going to get stung now and then, and, and maybe even a lot. And for him, this is still, still this kind of epic experience of pain. Well, I guess Absolutely, my last yeah. my last question, Mike, would be: I mean, you know, the Pacific Northwest has been through a lot. Washington State, you know, really kind of the first of the hotspots for COVID, and then this thing comes along, and it's not the same thing. Except that when you talk about it and tracking it and figuring out where the you know where the hornet hotspots are, it starts to sound a little bit similar, and psychologically. I don't know how are people in Washington State handling all this?
0: Well, I think there is. I mean, are you talking to the folks who are working on this? You, do do you see the similarities of like, okay, we found we found two. Um, we certainly didn't find the only two, right? like there's some sort of iceberg underneath this and how big is the iceberg is essentially the, the, the question right now? And yeah, so it's a, it's a lot of surveillance, you know, tracking. Trying to figure out and, and how to contain this thing, and and at the same time, so it's it's been a little bit tough because there's, um, you know, the researchers aren't going. You know, they're trying to travel out in separate cars. They're the the beekeepers. You know, we're holding meetings on this kind of thing to try and figure out strategies and how to how to how to share traps and and work together and you know there's some limitations just the logistically on, on that kind of stuff and so the yeah, the whole it's a, the whole thing is there's some parallels here yeah, and it's some
1: it's starting to sound a little too familiar all right yeah, yeah, yeah mike, exactly. mike, mike baker thank you so much for your time we gotta go show's over thanks to mike baker to carl zimmer lot. and john harris
2: but now she is coming back home to me